Well, welcome to Two Cities Church. Happy Mother's Day to moms and grandma and, uh, and any great grandmas we might have in here. Uh, we love moms, and we want to just take a moment and celebrate you. We all know, let's just say it out loud, you have the hardest job. Uh, you are raising the next generation. You're praying for them. You're, di- you're discipling them. You're disciplining them. Um, and, and we all know this is so, those of us who are uh, dads and, and have kids and you know, anytime mom leaves and we're left with the kids, I'm always like, you know, if she goes away, which doesn't get to happen very often, but she goes away for a night, I'm like, all right, kids, 4 p.m. bedtime. Okay, that's what we're gonna have to do. We're ordering pizza and a 4 p.m. bedtime because it's a lot. So thank you. We are all so grateful for our moms and their tireless and countless investment. I've heard it said before that nobody grew up poor who had a godly mom. And so we are just grateful for you. That's one thing we want to say on Mother's Day, but also on Mother's Day, we're reminded that um, for many people, Mother's Day is a very hard time of the year and, and, and a hard day of the year. And here's why. A couple of reasons. One, sometimes you lost a child or you lost a mom or you lost a grandma. And Mother's Day is a reminder of that in a painful way because maybe that happened this year. For others of you, Mother's Day is a very painful time because it, it represents longings, good longings in your heart that have not yet been fulfilled. You desire to get pregnant. You want to be able to have children. And for some reason, maybe you're not married, maybe you're married, maybe you're unable to have children. You can't get pregnant, you can't stay pregnant. Here's what we want to say, that God is near the brokenhearted. And that wherever the ideal is lacking, grace is abounding. And we want to be a church, we are a church, that will walk with you through all of the pain and through all of the trials in this life, even the trials and desires of wanting to be a mom and having that not realized yet. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for the moms in this room and we say thank you. That we, we say thank you that they invested in us and they prayed for us and they discipled us and they loved us and they listened to us. And we are just so grateful for the gift of mom and grandmother and great-grandmother. And Lord, we pray for the women particularly in this room who have that desire and for some reason, and there can be many reasons, for some reason it has not been fully realized. Lord, we pray for your grace in their life. Lord, we pray that we would be a church that would walk with them through all of the different seasons of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can open up your Bibles to 1 Peter. If you're new with us, here's what we do here. We walk through books of the Bible verse by verse, line by line, sentence by sentence. That's why we're going to take a small book, 1 Peter. We're going to spend about three or four months in this book. And just so you know, I never ever think in terms of an individual sermon, uh, but we think here in terms of an entire series. So we always wrap Um, the series or the book of the Bible in a series, and this one's called Not Our Home, and that's really important. I hope that that if you get one thing out of this entire series, it would be the realization, if you're here, if you're not, and if you're a Christian, that what you would realize is that this place is not your ultimate home. That we are passing through, but we are passing through with purpose. That doesn't mean we're passive. Christians are not passive in this world because it's not our home. In fact, we all the more care about discipleship and mission and faithfulness to Christ because we are part of the, we the kingdom of God, but we live in a culture that is temporary and passing away. So what we've done over the last few weeks, just to catch you up really briefly, is in week one we said, hey, this place is not our home, but let me tell you what it is. And we said it's not our home, but it's a place of mission. And if you go back and you can listen to that message or read the first two verses of Peter, Peter's saying, you guys are elect exiles. That's the Bible's word for missionaries in the world. And what the Bible says is that when you live in a culture, which we all do, that doesn't understand Christianity, whether it's pre-Christian or post-Christian or something like that, um, there's always two options that people try to go after and neither work. The first option is to retreat completely from culture. I don't know who first came up with the idea of the monastery, but it's not a biblical idea. It could be a good retreat center for a weekend or something, but the idea that you would go away 
with a bunch of other Christians and you have the gospel and you have the good news, but what you do is you go away all by yourselves for the rest of your lives to pray and talk with one another is not a picture of New Testament Christianity. Many Christians have their own version of retreating. We cannot retreat. The second thing we can't do is we can't fully assimilate into culture. We can't just take everything the culture does and say, we're just going to embrace it. We're just going to live exactly like the culture. We have to live uh, as a counterculture. That's what week, was one, week one was about. It's about being sent into the world. And then week two was all about trials. It's not our home, but it's a place of suffering. And the first time you go through some type of suffering, you're going to have to deal with that reality that this place is not your home. And even this past week, just since I preached that message on Sunday, I found myself on, it was either Monday or Tuesday, I was at somebody's hospital bed. They were having emergency surgery, a young man in our church. He's okay, but he was having emergency surgery for something on Sunday he didn't know was a trial in his life. We went and visited him, the surgery went well, we talked about how this is a trial. I got phone calls, I got emails, maybe like many of you do this week, of different things that are going on in people's lives that weren't even going on Sunday. But trials are always coming, and part of what it means to be a Christian is to say, uh, the trials are coming, but I'm going to trust God in the midst of them and, and, and through them. And God's going to use them somehow to, um, to grow me and develop my faith, and I don't know all the answers. But that's the point of, of, uh, of, of last week was that it's a place of trials. And thirdly, this week, it's not our home, but it's a place to be holy. And that's going to be the main idea, that this place is not our home, but it is a place to live a holy life. And I'm going to explain holiness because for some reason, and I don't know your experience, just right then when I said the main idea of the message today is going to be on holiness, how many of you thought, oh, I'm not looking forward to this, you know? Or, I mean, I felt that as preparing this. I don't know what's wrong with my own heart. I'm like, you know, I'm excited about talking about mission. I'm excited to even talk about, you know, God's faithfulness in the midst of our suffering. But for some reason, when I talk about holiness, I just be honest, I mean, now I've gotten there as I've wrestled with it and I've walked through it this week, but I wasn't initially as excited. And here's why I think that is, because um, the Bible calls us to holiness, but we live in a culture that's all about happiness. Now, you know, Gary Thomas was the first person to say this. He wrote a book called Sacred Marriage, which if you're married or want to get married or you're dating, engaged, whatever, great book to read. And I think the reason that book got so much traction is because the big idea for that book is, first, first chapter, maybe first line of the book is, what if your marriage isn't about your happiness, but your holiness. And that's the, that's the paradigm shift. Because here's the truth, and you know this if you've been through any type of suffering, but, but happiness is way too paper thin, shallow of a goal in life that it just doesn't work when your dad's dying. It doesn't work when you get cancer. It doesn't work when you lose your job. It doesn't work when someone sins against you grievously and you're struggling to forgive them. It doesn't work when your kid is sick. It doesn't work. It's because it's not a biblical value. Happiness may flow, joy may flow out of holiness, but that's not the main value. So I think one of the reasons this is a tough topic to talk about is because, well, we're talking about holiness in a culture that only cares about happiness. Secondly, I think it's that we don't really understand what holiness is. So I want to read you this passage, and I want to talk a little bit about what holiness is. Look at me at 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 15. We're going to cover more than this, but we'll start here. Therefore... In other words, to understand, this is why we preach verse by verse, because you cannot understand this verse unless you understand the first 12 verses. Therefore means, uh, in light of everything I just said and connected to everything I just said, let's go. Here's what we're doing. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Christianity begins in the brain. The, the Christianity starts in the mind. We'll get to this. But, but he, he, he says, if you want to change, you've got to start with your mind. And then he says this, and being sober-minded. So second time he's going to talk about the mind. 
Set your hope, we talked about hope in week, last week, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's his second coming. Verse 14, as obedient children, now we don't often like that word either. As obedient children, that's an identity he gives us. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you, here's the key phrase, as he who called you is holy. The only characteristic of God that is mentioned three times in the Bible is his holiness. Isaiah 6 says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. What that means is God is not just a bigger, better, smarter version of you. He's completely different than you. Completely, utterly, and totally different. That's why God says in Isaiah, uh, my thoughts aren't your thoughts, my ways aren't your ways, they're actually better than your ways. And what I want to do in my word is give you my thoughts, so the Christian's job is to think God's thoughts after him. That's what, you, that's what it means to be a Christian. I'm going to think God's thoughts after him. That what you were created to be was a revelation receiver. You were meant to receive God's revelation and live it out. That's how you were designed. So he says this, um, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And he quotes Leviticus, the book of the Bible none of us ever read, <laughs> right? It's like, you're like, that's the book that stopped me reading through the Bible in a year, right? The book of Leviticus. I got there, I'm like, I don't understand it. Well, he quotes, he's actually quotes it a couple times in his letters, the book of Leviticus. But here is the main idea. He says, I want you to be holy. And here's the big idea for today, that holiness is given by God, but pursued by us. Holiness is a gift from God. See, I want to explain this to you. The difference between religion, and we try to say this as much as we can here, the difference between religion and gospel or true Christianity is this. Religion, and any religion, and every religion says this, you need to be holy so God will love you and accept you. That's religion. It just looks different. It's just wearing different masks. So in Islam, it's you need to do these five pillars. In Hinduism, it's these seven steps. It all has to do with if you will do these things, you will be the type of person God accepts. That's religion. You will become a holy person. Gospel says you are not a holy person. In fact, the beginning of your Christianity is to admit I'm not a holy person. I'm a sinner. I'm a rebellious sinner who's guilty before God. But God is holy, and, and what makes Christianity so beautiful, so unique, is that a holy God seeks an unholy people. And when God seeks an unholy people, they become holy. We'll, we'll talk more about that. But that's the idea that God gives us his holiness. It's actually a gift. And then the New Testament ethic is become who you already are. Like you're a son and daughter, so live like that. You're forgiven, so live like that. You're pure, so live like that. Live out of who I've already said you are and you really are in my mind. That's what God says. But why, why don't we do this more? Why, why are we so confused about holiness? I, I think... Even Christians, even our idea of, of what holiness is, here's, here's what I think we think of oftentimes. Oftentimes we think holiness is a way people dress. What I mean is like the long jean skirt and, and the Amish hair in a bun. I mean, the, the, think of the front cover of every Christian fiction romance novel. Okay, you've seen those. It's like always an Amish girl on the front. I'm like, why is she always Amish? Okay, but it's like, well, because in someone's mind, and you get it, it's like, that's what it means to be holy. It's like, it's not, a, now, your holiness may affect your dress, but that's a secondary issue. It's always the hard issue that we're trying to get at. Um, the second thing that, that people think about holiness is, often people think of holiness, and I think this is why we've lost influence among the younger generation, because we talk about Christianity and holiness as if it's only what we don't do. 
So it's like, okay, here, you know, the old saying was, we don't smoke, drink, or chew, or hang with those who do. Or, you know, that was the old saying, if you're familiar with that. Um, or back in the day, it was, we don't play cards, we don't dance, um, we don't go to the theater. It's like, why? <laughs> you know, you go, well, why? Well, there might have been reasons, but we never talked about the heart of the issue. And see, again, that's what religion does. Religion says, let's make some standards that we can keep so we feel good about ourselves and look down on the people who don't do them. That's actually the definition of religion. Oh, look, and, that's, and actually, that's what Jesus hated the most. He called them whitewashed tombs. They were people who externally looked like they were doing things well, but internally they weren't changed or transformed. And holiness is much more about what we do than what we don't do. It's about, a, it's about a being co- committed and devoted to Christ. It's about repentance and faith. It's about discipleship and mission. The third thing is sometimes people just look at holiness and they think because maybe they met some eccentric Christian or something like that, they think, well, holiness means that you're weird or you're boring. It's like, you know, that's a, I know what holiness means, boring. And that's what we tend to think about with holiness. Or I was talking to a staff this week and they said, you know, I think for a lot of Christians, when they think about holiness, they think, and I get this, they think it feels like a massive burden in my life. Like, I don't know if I, 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 I don't know if I can attain it. I don't know. I've tried. I know I have besetting sins. I know I have struggles. So what I want to hopefully do today is I want to encourage you, call, call all of us up, not out, but call, call us up to, to a life of holiness because I think that's going to, I know according to scripture, that's what's going to be best for us. So let's go back to verse 13 and see where it all starts. In verse 13, it says this, therefore, and I, and I focus on this, therefore, in other words, um, I'm not giving you a command until you understand the first 12 verses. So if you read verses 1 through 12, Paul gives no commands. He doesn't tell them to do anything in the first 12 verses. He only tells them what God has done for them. Forgiven them, given them hope, made them born again, knows them, loves them, chose them. It's like, it's all what God has done. Now here's what's interesting. This is how the whole New Testament is. If you read the book of Romans, which is Paul's longest treatise on the gospel and on Christian living, you cannot find a command in the book of Romans until chapter six. Think about that. For five chapters, all Paul tells us is what God's done for us and how it changes us, and then we live out of it. And if you're gonna be holy, here's what you need to realize. You need to realize first, your identity comes before your activity. That all indicatives, which is who you are, always comes before the imperatives, what you should do. And that Christianity is not about working, I said this earlier, but to say it a different way, it's not about working for your salvation. We, can't, we don't do that. We work from our salvation. That God has saved me, God has changed me. This is why in the Bible there's two types of holiness. There is positional holiness, which is who you are because of what Christ has done. That's positional holiness. That God sees me or sees you, if you've trusted Christ, he sees you as absolutely perfect. No matter what you do, he he doesn't see you as any more perfect or any less perfect. You are completely perfect. That's your positional holiness, and you need to realize that. But then there is what's called your progressive holiness. And that's over time making decisions to follow and live for Christ and become more like Christ, become conformed to the image of God, um, become the godliest version of yourself. And so what Peter's going to do is he's going to give us five habits of holiness in this passage. And with our time left, I want you to see these five habits And these will not have an effect on your life if you're not first born again, if you don't first have a living hope, if you haven't first uh, trusted and and transferred trust from yourself to Christ. But if you've done that, I want to show you how to live a holy life. These are right out of, they arise right out of the scriptures. First, look at verse 13 one more time. It says this, 
Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Here's the first habit. The habit of thinking clearly and biblically. The habit of thinking clearly and biblically. Christianity starts in your brain. It starts in your mind. I don't know how Christians, and, and I kind of understand it, but Christians in our culture today, we, we kind of, like, people think like we're like cavemen. <laughs> or like we, we don't think, or we don't look at the sciences, or we don't understand history, or that's not true at all. Christians have actually always been, if you read church history, if you read history in general, Christians usually have been on the forefront of thought. For example, all of the sciences, little side note, all of the sciences arise from a Christian worldview. Because before that, people thought the earth was God. And we said, the Christians said, no, no, it's not God. It's creation, and we are actually to steward and subdue and have dominion over it. And that's how the sciences began. It was the Christian worldview that said the world is organized, it was created, and therefore there are things that can be discovered. Or think about it this way. The first settlers, when they came to the new world, think about this just for a second, because we, you know, they didn't have indoor plumbing. This was the 1600s. They didn't have air conditioning. They didn't have Wi-Fi. They were dying of starvation, and so were their children. And guess what they did in the first decade they moved here? In the winter, they built Harvard. They were all Christians. You go, well, why would you do that? You're dying, and your kids are dying. Why are you building Harvard? And it's because Christians have always valued the mind. They always knew that we need to educate the mind. We need to think Christianly. We need to, think God, we need to know God's word better, know God's world better, and we need to faithfully live it out. Here's what this means. Um, you can't just bank on what you feel all the time. What you feel isn't always real. And it's not, it's not to, um, I'm not trying to beat you up over your emotions, but we live in a generation that everybody is always focused on what I feel. Well, this is how I feel. Well, this is my experience. That's why we love, when it comes to the word of God, we always love to say this here. What would the word of God mean if you didn't exist? Well, to me, I feel like it means, no, 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 no. What would it mean if you didn't exist? That's what the word of God means. And so what, what happens is it's like, this is such an important concept. The tr truth is what is supposed to lead and limit your emotions. It, it's, if you want to change, this is such a powerful idea. If you want to change how you feel, you need to change first how you think. And that, that's a, in fact, the way that all change and transformation happens in your life is you think differently about something, and then it changes how you feel, and then it changes how you live. And I want you to see this. This is why he uses the phrase, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Literally, this literally means, if you have a more of a literal translation, the translation is gird up the loins of your mind. And some of you are like, what are my loins and how do I gird them? Okay. <laughs> And let me explain that. The loins were these long robes that men would wear. And, um, and basically, you know, you can't, not well at least, you can't run in a robe. And so the idea of girding up your loins is to take your long robe, to pull it in and to tuck it into your belt. And men would do that when they would go into war or when they would go to run. The, the whole idea is Christianity is not a passive thing. It is an active thing in which you live full out for Christ in the world. And to do that, you've got to pull everything in your mind together. That's the whole idea. You've got to, here's what this means. Do not believe everything you think. Some of you are like, you're going to get that on the ride home. Do not, let me say it again. Do not believe 
everything you think. That means things will pop into your head and you gotta go, well, okay, I, I think this. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily true. Girding up your, the loins of your mind may, means that you need to think about everything as a Christian. That's what it means. How, how does a Christian, in other words, what does it mean to be biblical? What does the Bible, and the, the great thing is the Bible speaks to every area of life. There's no area of your life you could say, um, I can't think Christianly or I can't think biblically. I can't think um, holistically, theologically about these things. So he says, first, he says, I want you to gird up the loins of your mind. Secondly, he says, I want you to be sober-minded. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't just mean don't get drunk. It certainly means that. There are several commands in Scripture about being sober-minded. But again, the, all of this, this is interesting. He's using a common metaphor that's used so many times for the Christian life, which is it's a place to run. It's a place of action. It's a place of movement, which is, by the way, how you do see the world. It, it, it's, you see a chair and you, you don't look at the fabric, you don't look at the, you, you see it as a place to sit. You see the world as a place in which to live. And he's saying, I want you to be sober-minded. What that basically means is, I want you to think very clearly about things and not be intoxicated, not just by alcohol, but it could be, you, there's other things, you could be intoxicated by what other people tell you. You could be intoxicated by watching too much Chip and Joanna Gaines, okay, and I love Chip and Joanna. But you watch a little Chip and Joanna Gaines and you start thinking your house got to look like that and it never will. And you can't afford it and that's okay. But it's like, you know, we start listening to certain things and it's like, well, I feel intoxicated. It, I, you know, who, who do you spend time with? It's like you can't be sober-minded around that person. You start doing things you shouldn't be doing. You start saying things you shouldn't be saying. For some of you, it's people. For some of you, it's shows. For some of you, it's environments. The whole idea of Christianity is to be sober-minded. Here's the idea. He's using a powerful metaphor. He said, you can't run drunk. You are not going to be able to run this race if you are drunk on something. So the whole idea is pull up the gird, the gird the loins of your mind, kind of pull up your garments, and then be very sober-minded because we have a lot to do. Here's the second thing he says. Verse 13, part two. He says halfway through, set your hope fully on the grace of God that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing, the habit of valuing the right things. So first you have to think clearly and biblically. Secondly, it's the habit of valuing the right things. So what he's saying here is the great hope of Christianity is that when Christ returns or I die, I will experience God's grace and not his wrath. That is the ultimate hope. So if you're talking to somebody who's dying of cancer, what is their ultimate hope? When you pass from this world, you will not face the wrath of God, but you will face the grace of God. That's the great hope in someone's life. What's the hope? When somebody's sick or somebody's life's falling apart or somebody's depressed, it's like, look, here's the hope in life, that at the end of time, you, what you're going to get to experience is the grace of God instead of the wrath of God. Now, we, we get to see some of God's grace in this earth, actually much of it. Right before first service, I had someone pull me aside and say, I gotta tell you something. I said, what? He said, I just led someone to Christ in my work this week. And I thought, praise God. That's a picture of, that's a picture of the grace of God in his life, that he cared enough. It's a picture of the grace of God in this person's life that came to Christ. And God will get, he'll, he'll heal marriages. He'll break addictions. He'll, uh, he'll save people. He'll make disciples. And you begin to see the grace of God. But look what he's saying here. He's saying what you need to do is there, there's some place what you need to value most is Jesus Christ, who he is, and the grace of God in your life. 
And, and this is very, very interesting because here's what they've shown. They have shown this has actually psychologically been proven. That what you, and I'm going to try to explain this best I know how, what you value the most in your life determines how the world manifests itself to you. Now, we live in an objective world. I'm not saying the world's subjective. I'm saying your experience of it is based on what you're currently valuing most. And you, you all know this. So if a guy really wants a girlfriend, really wants a girlfriend, that's his highest value, what does every woman become? A potential girlfriend. Because what he's valuing the most, the whole world divides itself into potential or not potential or whatever. Now, somebody who's married doesn't think that way anymore. If you are in sales and you desire more than anything to make sales, what does every person become to you? A client. This is very normal. It happens for all of us. Whatever you're valuing, if you go, well, how's, if you're like, I don't like what the world's showing me, start valuing something different. That's kind of the lesson. It's like, well, if your whole life is about good looking people and not good looking people, and that's how you categorize the world, well, then that's how it'll appear itself. If what you value the most in your life is money, then you start noticing how much everybody in his job and her job and their car and his house and their income. And, well, that's, that's, that's how you see the world because it's currently what you're valuing the most. And what's so scary is what they've, they've done studies of this. And what, what's so scary is when you're valuing, this is the scariest part of it, when you're valuing the wrong things, you miss everything else. So one of the most famous psychological experiments was done at Harvard. It was an experiment of, you may have seen this before, you can Google it later, not now, okay, please. Um, it was an experiment, um, I think it's called the, the gorilla experiment, and it's, it's, it's these six basketball players dressed in white and these six basketball players dressed in black, and you're told to watch the basketball players dressed in white pass the ball. And you have to count how many times they pass the ball. Well, while that's happening, a gorilla, man dressed as a gorilla, steps in the middle of the ball passing and beats his chest and walks out. Well, they did this. It's, it's one of the most successful psychological experiments ever been done. Over 50% of people who saw the experiment never saw the gorilla. And you go, well, how didn't they see it? Because they weren't looking for it. Because what they were valuing in the moment was counting basketballs. And they missed a gorilla in the middle of it. And you go, so here's the big idea for Christians. When you value Jesus Christ above everything else and his grace, then everything in your life begins to represent itself appropriately. You start seeing people as lost. Right? Like, have you ever noticed this? Like, you're at a restaurant and it's like, you know, you're so hungry, so what is the waitress to you? Someone to get you your food really quickly because that's what you're valuing. But if you ever walked into a restaurant and actually been filled with the Spirit and thought, I wonder if my, relation, I wonder if my waitress knows Christ. Do you get what I'm saying? It's like as you begin to value the world differently, you see sin not as an escape to pleasure. That's what you see. If you value yourself most and pleasure most, that's what sin is. It's an escape to pleasure. If you value Christ, you see it as an escape from pleasure. Do you see how powerful the concept is this is? So however the world is manifesting itself to you is telling you what you value most. And what it's saying is you should set your hope fully. If you underline your Bible, I would underline the word fully. It means don't be 75% Christian. Don't have a secret fantasy life. It's like there is, the idea is what Paul or Peter here is saying is there should be in your life no plan B for following Christ. It's like I, I'm all in. You know, I don't know if you heard the story. It's a very famous story, story of Cortez. When he came to the new world, he was moving in and there was a lot of work to be done in the new world. 
and of course, the men had left Spain and they had left everything in Cortes when they were out one day. The men look back and all of their ships are burning. And Cortes, their leader, went and burned all their ships. It's such a powerful, he said, basically, guys, I had to burn them. Because if you knew you could go back, you'd never fully invest here. And that's the same idea that we should be all in with the grace of God. We're all in. If, if, Jesus Christ, if we have a picture of Jesus Christ, we're with Jesus Christ. He's, in the, he's standing right next to us, front row. He's not back in the, in the back, barely seen. It's like we're all about Jesus Christ. We're all about discipleship. We're all about mission. We're highly relational. We're explicitly Christian. We're all in on this Christian thing. We're all in on this Jesus Bible mission thing. Here's the third thing. So he said, first, you need to think biblically. Second, you need to value the right things. Third, the habit of obedience, even when you don't feel like it. Whew. That's a hard one. It's a hard one to preach. It's a hard, harder one to live. Obedience when you don't feel like it, which is most of the time, right? In certain areas of your life. So look what he says, verse 14. As obedient children, some of you don't even like that phrase, but, but here's what he's doing again. He's giving you an identity for an activity to flow out of. As obedient children, so that's your identity. That's who God has made you. You don't need to become that. That's who you are. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So he tells us two things. He says, first of all, he says that the number one hindrance to you living a holy life and obeying God are the passions of your past and they are rooted in your ignorance. So let me explain these. Man's greatest problem, according to the Bible, is his ignorance. And I remember I heard Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a famous pastor in the 20th century. He said, he said, man's greatest problem is not that he's going to hell. And you go, well, that sounds like a big problem. <laughs> you know, man's greatest problem is not that he's under God's wrath and facing God's judgment and apart from the grace of God and a sinner justly condemned. And you go, well, those all sound like massive problems to me. Um, but what Martin Lloyd-Jones says is actually, according to the Bible, man's greatest problem is he does not know those things. That, and, it, and it's interesting, if you read the Bible very carefully, particularly the New Testament and what Paul says, you'll see him all the time talk about ignorance. They do not know God. And what, what he's saying is, the reason that you sin is because you're believing lies. That you are, and, and here's what's so hard, it's like, it's not just that we're passively ignorant going, God help me, I don't know. Because that would be a great posture to be in. That's actually a fantastic posture. Lord, I don't know what you say about marriage. Help me. I don't know what you say about money. I don't know what you say about dating and relationships. I, I want to go to your word. That would be, be an active ignorance. <laughs> like, or passive, like, Lord, I, I want to know. But we are, we're something worse than that. We think we know better than God. Every time you sin... You, you would never say this out loud, but, or I would never say this out loud, but basically you're saying, God, I know better than you in this area. I know what you said about sexuality, but it's the 21st century. You haven't read the current psychological literature. It, but if you did, you would think differently about this. I know what you said about money, but you know what? It's like that was before there was college and 401ks and retirement. I mean, you don't really understand how it works in this way. I know you've talked about forgiveness, and I mean, I know you forgave me of all my sins, but I just can't forgive my mother-in-law because of this. And it's just like, what do we do in those situations? We say, God, 
I'm smarter than you in this area of my life. I know what your word says, but instead I'm going to do what I feel. And he says that's, that, that is the great danger. And so that's why he calls us. He says they are the passions of your former ignorance, which means this. To have new passions, you need new knowledge. And so what you should do, it's like if you want to grow in any area of your life, what you need to do is you need to have new knowledge. It's like, well, how do I fight? I'm just going to give a classic example of what most people struggle with, what everyone struggles with to some extent, which is sexual sin. How do you fight sexual sin? Well, you can't just go, I don't want to do all the bad things I used to do. I mean, that might be a place to start. But but you actually go, what I need to do is see men and women completely differently. I need to see them as made in God's image, as people whom Christ died for, as brothers and sisters in Christ, or as lost and heading to hell. I need to view them as sons and daughters of God created by him. I need to understand what sexuality is and where its place is in marriage. All of that. So as you begin to understand those things, then you begin to have new passions, new desires. Fourthly, he says, after obedience, he says, and here's, I want to kind of camp out on this one just for a little bit. The fourth habit is the habit of fearing God as a father. The habit of fearing God as a father. So you need to think biblically, value the right things, obey even when you don't feel like it. And third, the habit of fearing God as a father. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. It's interesting. God is described here as a father who judges, which is what every good father does. Being a distant dad, being a passive parent is not being a good dad. There are obviously dads who abuse their authority, but much more than that, there are dads who abandon and abdicate their authority. And what we see with God is it's interesting. He is a father who judges. Here's what it says. Look at that word, impartially. Here's what that means. You can't get out of it. Rich people and poor people, black, brown, and white, men and women, young and old, everybody must stand before the judgment seat of God. Let me, let me explain this to you because a lot of people say, when we talk about the fear of God, I hear people talk more, especially I hear pastors, I'll hear people talk about, they'll talk more about what the fear of God doesn't mean than what it means. They'll be like, you know, the fear of God does not mean that you should be, that you should be uh, in terror of God. It's like, well, actually, that's exactly what it means in some passages. It means we should be absolutely terrified. That does mean that many times. But it doesn't only mean that. It's like, well, people talk so, well, it means, it, basically it means respect. No, it doesn't. It, mean, it means so much more than that. You fear God, obviously, because of who he is, just in general. And because the Bible says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of, the mighty God, of Almighty God. But let me tell you the number one reason that you fear God biblically. This, is, this shows up again and again and again and again and again. Because I want us to be people who love God, have the love of God, but the fear of God is an important component of, the love of, of loving God. And here's what the fear of God is. We fear God because we will, we fear God because there is a final judgment. Do you see that there? Because, um, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... So what's going to happen? Let me, let me clarify this. We are, if you're a Christian, you are saved by grace. You are evaluated by works. You are saved by God's grace and what Jesus Christ has done. But in, at the last day, you will be evaluated by your own works. The, the New Testament would make no sense if that isn't true. Paul talks about this all the time. Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And what does he say right before that in 2 Corinthians 5? knowing that I'm going to be judged. Every person in this room, when you die, you don't stand before a mirror and give an account to yourself. 
Every person stands and gives an account to God for their life. And it's about the weightiest thing. In fact, I was reading a book on parenting this week. And the guy says this. I never read, I've never seen this before. I'm reading the book on parenting. It goes, your job as a parent is to get your kid ready for the final judgment. Woo! Get ready. It's like intense, but let's, let's talk about this for a second. So I remember I was talking to Andy Davis, and Andy Davis is the smartest, godliest man I've ever personally met. He was my pastor at First Baptist Durham. Uh, he has, he's so godly, he has memorized the entire New Testament. Literally has not memorized. And he's just one of those guys, he went to MIT undergraduate, he's just the smartest of the smarts. PhD in church history, and, I, and so whenever I'm with him, I would always talk to him, and I'd always ask him questions about the Bible. And I remember we're sitting outside one day, we were at a conference together, and I said, Andy, I said, tell me about the final judgment. And he was in his 50s, and he looked at me, and he goes, it's going to be very hard. And I said, for the Christian? He said, oh, it'll be very, very, very hard. He said, and then it will be over. And he said something I never, he said, you know, when you read in the book of Revelation, he'll wipe away every tear. He said, I think those are tears from the final judgment. Whew. Just the tears of, you know, I know I, I, you're right, Lord, I could have been more faithful. I should have repented of that sin a lot longer. I should have told people about Christ more than I did. I should have been more generous. Lord, you're right. I had such a short life. And so we, we fear God. It's not that we're in constant dread. He's a good father. We're going to be saved. That's the, that's the tension you live in. It's like your salvation is secure and God's going to talk to you about everything in your life. Yikes. I mean, that's the, that's the tension that we all feel. I feel it, I, you know, I'm talking about it right now. And so you fear God for two reasons primarily out of that. Number one, you don't want to disappoint him. And number two, you don't want to be disciplined by him. So if you understand you're a son, it's like, you know, you think about a high schooler. Think about a high schooler who's really tempted to do something. Or maybe he's a freshman in college or she's a freshman in college. Really tempted to do something and says, I'm not going to do it. And, the, and, and his friends go, I know the reason you're not going to do it. You're just, you just, you're just so afraid your dad's going to, you know, do something to you. And your dad's going to just yell at you. And what if instead he said, actually, no, what I don't want to do is I don't want to disappoint my dad. We have the same last name. I love him. I respect him. We look the same. He's invested in me. He's taught me that I would never want to do anything to disappoint my dad. That, that's, it's like the, the biblical idea of God as a father. It's like he is the best dad ever who I would never want to disappoint. And the second thing is that God disciplines us. And that, that is, here's that idea. God will come after you in love. But if you go off in unrepentant sin and you are a Christian, the Bible promises God will come after you and discipline you for your good. It's not punishment, it's discipline. The best illustration I ever heard of this was, was John Piper. He's a former pastor in, in uh, Minnesota. He said that um, his son, he had like a five-year-old son at one time, when his son was real little, he said his son went over um, this guy's house and there was a massive dog. He said it was so scary that it would be right at eye level with his five-year-old son and, and uh, he was, his son was so scared of it. And the owner said, don't worry, he's a great dog. He's really kind. And so they would play with the dog. And then at one point, though, the son ran away from the dog. And he said the dog started barking and chasing after him. And he said, the owner said, hold on. He doesn't like it when people run away from him. And he said, that's exactly how God is. That God loves you, that God is so committed to you, but that God is committed to going after you when you run away from him. That's the story of Jonah. 
We covered that a couple years ago as a church, but he will, what God did with Jonah is he destroyed the ship to save the sinner. That's discipline. He destroyed the ship of Jonah to save the person of Jonah. So we need to think biblically. We need to value the right things. We need to obey when we don't feel like it. We need to fear God as a father. And finally, where's the power from all of this? It comes from the habit of meditating on the gospel in community. The habit, the final habit, that kind of empowers and invigorates everything else is the habit of meditating on the gospel in community. Let me, let me talk about this for one second. What does it mean to meditate? Well, if you've ever been anxious about something, you are meditating on it. If you ever like went over the situation again, again, again in your mind, that's called meditation. If you ever got a, um, a text from a, from a boy or a girl and you're, and, uh, that you liked and you're reading it again and again and going, why did he put ha-ha at the end? Okay? <laughs> and you're... You're going over it in your mind again and again and again and again. That's called meditation. And, and the, re, what, how, the way that the gospel gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into us is that we do that exact same thing with the gospel. We think about it again and again and again and again and again. And we read different passages about it. We look at different ideas of it. And I want you to see the motivation here. Here's what he says. So, so talking about the fear of God, he goes right into this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways. So ransomed, it could also be the word redeemed. It's the idea of being bought back from slavery. That you were enslaved to Satan, to sin, to death, to hell. You were enslaved to yourself in many ways. And he says, here's what's happened. God's given you all the power you need to be holy. Because he ransomed you from what? The feudal ways. He didn't take you away from anything that was worthwhile. See, the great, the great problem with the... Um, with the Israelites in the Old Testament, is they kept looking back to Egypt going, we want to go back to Egypt, if you know their story there. And what they had forgotten is they forgot all of the slavery and only a little bit of the pleasure. And that's what happens with so many people sometimes. They look back on their lives and go, if I could just do this. He's saying, hey, feudal means empty or pointless. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. That could mean parents or culture. In other words, what God does is he breaks the bad habits and addictions and generational sins of your past. It's like some of you, it's like your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather were an alcoholic, and God's breaking that in you. Some of you, it's like none, no one in your family could ever hold together a job or hold together a marriage, and God's breaking that. And you're now the new link in a brand new chain. You're the first link in a brand new chain. That's going to have generational effects. And he's like, that's the power of the gospel. It changes you. Not with perishable things, such as silver and gold. So he's going to tell us how God bought us, how God paid for your holiness, how God paid for your salvation. And he didn't use silver or gold. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You can tell how valuable something is by what someone's willing to pay for it. And we say this again and again here, but God doesn't make junk and God doesn't die for junk. You're not junk. So, you know, you do not have a low view of yourself. God does not have a low view of you. Yes, you are a sinner, but you're a sinner that Christ was willing to die for. That's the gospel. And it says he paid for it with his blood. Now, blood represents the life of something. Jesus died so you could live. Jesus was born so you could be born again. Here's what it says here. Like a lamb without blemish or spot, spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. You were not an afterthought. 
God went after you and knew he was going to do it. You were for, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. What he's saying, that's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that you are rebelling against God. You are rebels against God. That's the heart of the gospel. That you rebelled against God and said, God, I don't want your ways. I don't want to think like you. I want to live in the passions of my former ignorance. I'm not asking for you to save me. You were rebelling against God and you were guilty before God. And yet Jesus Christ came and lived the life you couldn't live and died in your place. And it's that ransom, it's that purchasing you from freedom that gives you the ability to fight sin in your life. The only sin you can fight in your life, Charles Wesley said, is forgiven sin. Sin that you've already been forgiven of. And so he says, but you, you won't be able to do this by yourself. I want you to look at verse 22. He says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love, love, so love shows up twice here, love one another earnestly. In our definition of love, the Bible's definition of love is a commitment to another person's good, which is the opposite of making somebody feel good. People think you're loving if you say nice things about me and make me feel good. No, not necessarily. It won't be loving for you to talk to me about my sin and my need to repentance. Actually, it would be the most loving thing for me to do. I want to do it in, in, in a warm way, but the most loving thing for me to do is to be committed to your highest good. And your highest good is to know Christ and make him known. So he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. That phrase shows up again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And then he tells how all of this, and we'll talk more about this next week, but how all of this happens through the living and abiding word of God. What he's saying, and this is why everything we do here is focused on the word. That it is the word that changes people. It is the word that creates. It is the word that makes you go from ignorant to wise, from thinking unbiblically to thinking biblically from not obeying to obeying, from not knowing the gospel to knowing the gospel, all of it is the word of God. And he said it is the living and the abiding word of God. It's the word of God that tells us the great story of Jesus Christ. See, what happened, what makes Christianity so unique, I kind of said this at the beginning, but to say it a little differently, what makes Christianity so unique is that you have a holy God who comes to an unholy people and makes them holy because of his sacrifice. That's the heart of the gospel. See, in the Old Testament, what would happen is they would say, if you are unholy and somebody else is holy and the two of you touch, both become unholy. That's the Old, Old Testament. It's kind of like if somebody has the flu, you're like, stay away from me, right? Because <laughs> you're, you're not going to make them healthy with your health, but they might make you sick with their sick. That's how things work. But what, what's amazing about Jesus Christ is he comes and he's the only holy person who by touching the unholy makes us holy. He doesn't become unholy, but makes us holy. That's the power of the gospel. And he changes us and he transforms us. And, and here's the truth. What your neighbors need is they need a holy neighbor. They need a holy person. They need somebody. What is that? That's somebody whose life is being changed by Jesus Christ. It's like, what do your kids need at the end of the day? What our kids need is they need, they need to see that Jesus Christ makes a difference in our lives and changes how we think, changes how we live. They need to see, I, I've told you this before, but the number one thing that the Bible says God uses in the salvation of people's children is the parents' fear of him. You'll always see uh, the man who fears God, blessed are his children. We want to be a, a church where we fear God. 
We want to be a church where we are committed to thinking biblically. And, and the way we, we view it is if, if Jesus Christ was willing to give his life for the mission of the church, we should be willing to give our time, our talent, and our treasure to help see that mission go forward. Pray with me. Lord, that's our prayer. We want to be people who fear you, who realize that everything we've ever done, everything we've ever said, Everything we've ever thought, every motive we've ever had, we will have to give an account, and it will be hard. But we thank you that at the end of the day, we will be saved because of Jesus Christ. And we also thank you that his work in our life changes us so that we can, we can be holy, changed people, transformed, so that at the final judgment, there is fruit in our life. There are things that we saw last week that, that there will be reward, and there will be praise, and there will be honor in our faithfulness and fruitfulness as well. Lord, I pray for our city. We live in a city where the majority of people in our city are living in the passions of their flesh and in accordance with just complete ignorance. They don't know God. They're without God and without hope in this world. And I pray as we go that every person in our city would eventually know somebody personally whose life is being changed and transformed by Jesus Christ and that that would influence them as well. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.